Hello, and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Obeska, and I am happy to announce that we have just been named to the top 40 social justice podcasts by Feedspot. So, hey, but in other news, today I'm speaking with Stuart Bird and Deborah Schaefer, the co-directors of a powerful documentary about the industrial workers of the world, The Wobblies. Workers' rights is something that's near and dear to my heart. But when you created this film in 1977, The Wobblies, what was your original intent when you first set out to make this film? It's, 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 it's an interesting place to start. Um, we, uh, Stu and I both came out of, we, we both started making films with an organization called Newsreel which was uh, formed really at the time of the anti-Vietnam War movement. And we started in kind of really political filmmaking, um, what became called agitprop filmmaking, anti-war films, films about women's movement, early days of the women's movement, some strikes, uh, an oil strike in California, all kinds of different um, subjects. But um, having been very active in the anti-war movement and then the Vietnam War kind of ended, and a lot of us on the left found ourselves, I think, a little high and dry in the mid-70s because the war ended in 1974. And it was like, huh, now what do we do? And we started looking to the past history of left-wing movements in the United States to understand where they had come from, you know, to try to learn from them, from their successes and failures. So it wasn't so much that we had a the irony is that The Wobblies has suddenly become a very contemporary film, 43 years after we made it, which is kind of hard to wrap our heads around because certainly when we thought of it, when we made it, we were doing it really as a history film. And, but it's, it has turned out to be very much a, a living history, a, a vital and, and living history. So I don't know, Stu, I'll let you pick it up from there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we were looking at American history for the first time, things that weren't covered in textbooks and that we didn't know about. And we were also looking at history from the ground up. A lot of historians are writing about that way at that time, rather than looking at the, the uh, titans of industry, what was the average person doing? And... Uh, Deborah and I were in Newsreel together. We met in Detroit. I was working on a film called Finally Got the News. And um, Deborah came, came by with uh, someone I knew from New York Newsreel. And we met for the first time. And then we didn't uh, see each other for a few years. And we were back in New York. And uh, I did a play on the Wobblies. Uh, I did a play. I wrote it with Peter Robolata. We did it at the Hudson Guild Theater uh, in New York, and um, Deborah saw it. She came down and saw it, and uh, she also met some of the Wobblies at that time. And uh, Deb, you want to pick it up? Well, yeah. Um, I the reason I went to see the play was, of course, I knew Stu, and I thought it was amazing that this play was being put on that that he had written. But also, somebody had given me a book called Milltown that was about the strike in Lawrence, Mass., the 1912 strike. And it's a photo book written by a guy named Bill Kahn, and it had been banned in the 
fifties as being too communist for, it was banned for being a communist book. Um, and it was really a picture book about this strike. I mean, there was nothing, you know, particularly incendiary about it. It was just truthful about workers conditions and the, and, and the story of the strike. Anyway, I was shocked as a, as, I think Stu just alluded to that the history of the IWW, I'd never heard of them. I had gone to college. I had gone to, uh, you know, I'd studied history, whatever, and I'd never heard of the IWW. So, I would, you know, we were very um, intrigued by this lost history. And then, as Stu said, some of the old Wobblies had come out to see the play the night I went to see it. And they hung around afterwards, and I was hanging around. And I just, it just seemed so obvious to me. They were very elderly. They were in their 80s. And, and I just knew that if there was any, you know, chance of recording these people for history, for posterity, forever, we had to jump on it. And we did. We just, I, 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 I think Stu was at first a little reluctant. Um, but then uh, we, we found a camera woman. There were just, there were pretty much three of us. We, the, the camera person changed uh, several times during the, the production, but we were a very small crew. We did everything ourselves. We had a little tiny bit of money to get the film started and make some sample work. And then fortunately, we were able to get a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to fund the bulk of the production, which took us all over the United States. Wow. And it's a fabulous film that delves into so many different topics all throughout. But one thing that I find interesting about the documentary is how embedded music seems to be, both within the framework of the documentary and in terms of the movement of the industrial workers of the world. And I wondered how you thought about that, either as a framing device or as something within the movement. We, uh, we knew about the importance of the music. I mean, we saw the Little Red Songbook. We read books about it. Um, so we knew about it. But the first person we interviewed was Sophie Cohn. And in the middle of the interview, she just burst out in the song. So uh, that gave us a clue that this is even more important <laughs> than we had thought. And we began to ask the people we interviewed if there was... Uh, a song or uh, that, you know, that was important to them or they remembered and they all sang every one of them. And it was uh, crucial to the movement. Um, I think Tom Morello said in his editorial in the New York times, he said it was a kick-ass union uh, fueled by kick-ass songs. So, um, but the, the songs are so important because they were both informational they allowed them to band together, have a culture and a spirit that pushed them through the hardest of times, being in jail, uh, you know, coming for free speech fights and filling up the local jails. They used that music to um, survive and to see a better future and to explain things to themselves. It's fascinating because protest music has always been a thing, but the feeling behind this music is very much a sense of camaraderie and communion, even in terms of the feeling that it gives you in the film when these people break out into song or you play clips from older recordings. But what's fascinating to me is the feeling of camaraderie that these people still seem to share in their 70s and 80s when you're interviewing them and how that feeling came across to you in the room as you were recording this. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, the the music was crucial, and I, you know, I think what just occurs to me another another aspect of it was because often so many of the IWW members were born overseas um, initially. You know, foreign born. There, there were so many immigrants in the movement that the music also became a way to communicate to communicate across language barriers, even if mm. people couldn't necessarily have you know, complicated conversations with each other. They could learn the lyrics, they could learn the chorus, they could sing together. And it became a really valuable way to communicate amongst themselves too. That's very powerful. I wonder too, though, looking at the history of the movement and the way that you explore some of these ideas, there were a couple of things that really struck me as interesting as I was watching the film, one of which was the way that you explore the violence of mouths shut. That comes up in one of the interviews that there's this discussion of how employers just want you to keep your mouth shut and your hands in your pockets and the violence behind that. In that particular interview, how hard was it to frame the violence of sabotage versus the violence of corporate America and the industrial companies? How hard was it to find the right balance for that? I think like with many things in the film, we, we kind of followed the lead of our subjects. Hmm. And we, we let them, we let them argue it out. We let them present, you know, I know one of, one of our, one of our people says, you know, sabotage doesn't mean to, to throw a wooden shoe in the machine. It means to slow down on the job. And that was, you know, a really effective tactic. And then somebody else says it, no, it meant to throw to, you know, wreck the machinery so that you wouldn't have to work all night in the harvest fields, you know, and it's, they were paid, they were paid by the day. And if the, if it was uh, in the summertime and the moon was, it was near the full moon, the day didn't end. They, they could work into, you know, very, very late hours of the night by moonlight. So uh, sometimes the only way they could get you know, get a break on the job was to make sure the, the machinery stopped, mm-hmm. the threshing machines or whatever, the conveyor belts. So, but we, we let them, we didn't try to, I don't think we, I mean, obviously we made editorial choices all along, um, but I, I don't think we imposed, you know. We didn't think about it a whole lot. Okay. One of the other points that comes up that is one of the rare points that is actually given voiceover narration is the point about women in the IWW movement. And I found that fascinating. The accusation in the papers that they were putting women at the front so that the police would be afraid to attack. Rather, no, it's just that we don't put the woman at the back. <laughs> I love that point and that distinction. And they go to the front. And they, they go, go to, to the, the front. front. <laughs> yeah. We don't keep them in the back and they go to the front. Exactly. And I love that idea of of the women being allowed to go to the forefront wherever they can and should be able to. And I wonder for you, Deborah, as the co-directing partner on this film, how did it feel to be able to be co-director on this film and put forward these women's voices in this particular way at this time? Since I had started in documentary you know, telling story, women's stories in particular had been very important to me. And I had done others before I did this film and, and since. And 
There were actually, uh, I had been thinking about this the other day in the context of this film being revived. There were very few women making documentary films at the time. Uh, when we were in Newsreel, there were women in the organization. And then this is post, kind of post Newsreel, but there were very, very, very few women in the documentary field uh, at that at that time. There were many more men doing it. And I did, I know that I, there was a time when I, th- I realized that uh, Stu, I don't even know if you experienced this or what you if, the same way, but yeah. people would, would people would know that the two of us had, were making the film together, but they would assume that it, it was really Stu making the film. Mm. That like I must have been his girlfriend or something, um, or you know that I just was not really an equal partner somehow in the filmmaking. And when I made my next film after that, I also had a a, a partner who was a guy. And I said to him, uh, when we started the film, I said, you know what? We have to separate our credits because I'm not getting enough credit myself as a person when I'm doing it as a partner, as a woman with a guy, so that, you know, you be the producer on this one and I'll be the director so that there's no confusion about, you know, my having a full role in it. It's nothing that Stu did at all. It's, the, it's what other people, you know, kind of mm-hmm. brought to it and imposed on us. And I don't know, Stu, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, there was another funny story occurred to me lately. There, we tried not to ever, like, really impose on the people we were interviewing by staying with them. You know, we would stay nearby in a motel or whatever. But some of these places were very remote and we didn't, we had very little money. And, and there was a time when somebody said they were going to put us up at their house and we agreed to it. And we got there and they had one room and one double bed. For, they had just assumed. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> we just kind of looked at each other. I don't even remember how we got out of it. I don't know what we did. But, you know, there was just an assumption. I couldn't be an independent. A, a woman wouldn't be out there by herself doing this, you know, as an independent person. She had to be an appendage to a guy. That's a good way to put it. Be an appendage. Yeah. We were such a small crew. It was always the three of us. Yeah. Uh, whether it was Deborah I and Judy Arola, or Deborah I and Sandy Sissel, or Deborah I and Peter Gessner, um, you know, it was mostly the three of us. We had a different sound person, but I, I can understand Deborah's feelings about it. I, 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 um, I didn't think about it a whole lot while we were doing it at all. And it's it's really changed. I mean, that's one thing that has changed. Of course, documentary films have been. Um, you know, a field that was much, much more open to women since the, you know, starting from the, from the sort of contemporary era of documentaries, which started really in the early 70s, portable, you know, lightweight sync sound equipment. Well, portable lightweight, not compared to the video cameras of today. The, uh, <laughs> the camera we were using was an eclair, weighed 50 pounds. And the tape recorder we were using, the Nagra, weighed 25 pounds. And actually, because Stu just mentioned our cinematographers, principally this film was shot by women. And they happened to be two of the women. I don't know that we did that on purpose, but um, and we didn't set out to say, okay, we're going to hire, you know, we're going to work with women. But they ended up being two of the most pioneering women in the, they were the, two of the first women who were accepted into the um, IATSE, which is the Cinematographers Union. That's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, and one of them, Judy Irola, very sadly passed away last year. Um, she went on to shoot many, many, many um, documentaries and, and, and fiction features and taught at, um, I guess, at USC. I think she was at USC for many, many years. And um, 
you know, a very beloved figure in the world of cinematography. Oh, my goodness. Well, I want to thank you both so very much for this interview and for your work with these powerful words that you preserved for the ages. I really appreciate it. And I know it's such a fabulous thing that MoMA is putting together this whole reflection on the Wobblies. And I'm sure that must be very gratifying for you. We're very grateful. And I think we're very humbled by the fact that, that, you know, the words are, that it's, the work is still relevant, that the, that the, it's still needed. Industrial workers still need protection. Workers still need, look what's happening with the labor unions all around us. Look what's the, you know, labor unions are, are, back on the rise. Um, unorganized workers are getting organized. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it would be in, in one way, it would have been nice if this film had, you know, written itself out of existence, if it had outlived its, its relevance, but it hasn't. Mm-hmm. Certainly not. And it is every bit as relevant today as then. So thank you so much. And I wish you all the success in the world with your new run of your wonderful film. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you so much, Ariel. Take care. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of land stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch.